If you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, I just want to kind of say as we've been going along through here that it is my concern because I realize that the, the lessons we're studying in the Scripture passage here kind of lend themselves to like uh, some academic dazzlement and oh wow, that's kind of neat and this is interesting information. And I want to remind us this morning that God did not give us His Word simply to educate us. Nor did He give us His Word to satisfy our curiosity. He gave us the Scriptures to transform our lives. And every truth that is there should affect the way we live. Uh, When we get into these passages... And study, for example, this morning, the uniqueness of the creation of man. Understanding ourselves in creation should make a difference in how we live. And in how we treat one another. And in how we view life through these human eyes of ours. God gave us this to understand our relationship with Him and with one another. Also, as we come to chapter 2 today, uh, I want to remind you that last week we looked at chapter 1, and I told you that was the what of creation, that in chapter 1, that we come to the end of the chapter, toward the end of the sixth day, or in the sixth day, and God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so He created him in the image of God, Male and female, He made them. And He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth. And behold, I have given you uh, every green plant for food. It will be food for you. So this is your planet. You know, and that's kind of the the wrap-up of chapter 1. And we learn in that that Man, humankind, is made in the image of God as the crowning pinnacle of creation. And that uh, he holds, mankind holds a special place in the creation of God. That's kind of the what of it. What are we? But as we come to chapter 2, we're going to be looking at how he created humanity. How did he put... The, the man and the woman together? How did He fashion them? What is that all about? Because God wants us to understand it. And so when we come to chapter 2, we kind of dial in on the sixth day and focus on this one aspect of the day six of creation, and that aspect is the creation of man. Now, as we come to this, I debated whether to bring this material out. And, and sometimes, you know, I wonder how much background should I bring out on Sunday morning and, and, and share. Is it too academic? Is, is it too much information, you know, TMI kind of thing? Or is it uh, necessary for the background? And, and I decided that um, it would be a good idea to give some background of the different ways that evangelical teachers and preachers and scholars are looking at these two chapters. And it's good to talk about it here because chapter 2, 
talks about the same thing that happened at the end of chapter 1. And it looks like, you know, there's, there's two versions or two accounts here. And this is a good place to, to stop and say, how are evangelicals looking at the interpretation of this portion of Scripture? Let me define evangelical for you. I'm still using the concept that an evangelical is a person who holds the Bible to be the Word of God. They believe that it's true. They believe it's inspired. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for our sin, was buried and resurrected, and that His blood cleanses us from sin and gives us the hope of heaven, and that He was raised and He's coming back again. An evangelical believes the Bible, believes the gospel. Now, within that circle of people who share those common beliefs about the faith, there are three different viewpoints on how we got Genesis 1, 2, 2 and 3, or how they should be interpreted. There is a viewpoint among Bible believers today that actually goes back to the 19th century to German liberal scholarship that did not believe in inspiration so much as they were looking for a human understanding of how we got the Bible. And in looking at that, uh, they analyzed Genesis and the first five books of the Bible. They said, well, we see evidence here that there are multiple sources. In other words, the, the editor... Not Moses, but the editor of the compilation of Genesis picked from different sources and tried to put them together. And so, uh, sometimes we see this source and sometimes we see another. And they called that, or it eventually became called, the Documentary Hypothesis or the JEDP Theory. And what they meant by JEDP theory was, you remember I said Yahweh was the name for God, Elohim was the name for God, that takes care of the J and the E. And then the P is the priestly influence of the liturgy, the ritual of worship. And then D just kind of covers the rest of the documents, and you throw them all together. And they said sometimes the editor didn't know what to do with the two opinions, so he just put them both in there. And this is how we got Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is the Elohim version of creation, and Genesis 2 is the Yahwist version of creation, and the editor just put them both there for us, and they're two different stories entirely. And what's interesting is that some evangelicals have accepted this, as a way of getting this material into the Bible, except they say God kind of oversaw the whole thing. And the whole point is that we understand the principles that are involved and not get so hung up on trying to make it precise history. You know, I, I think I've given you a fair representation of that, uh, not a very glowing representation, but I think a fair one, and that, that that's kind of the viewpoint that some 
evangelical teachers uh, hold to. Another one that is becoming increasingly popular, and I would say in the last 20 years it has gained prominence in many of our seminaries, and that's called the framework hypothesis. Now, why am I telling you this? Because eventually we're going to study the cosmology of all this and the creation of the universe from a scientific standpoint compared to the Bible. And I want you to have some background when we get there to to kind of piece it together. Because the problem that everyone faces today is, how do I reconcile the Bible with evolution? How do I make these two fit? And if geologists and uh, astrophysicists and cosmologists and biologists are all correct that the universe is 14 billion years old and the earth is hundreds of millions, billions of years old and life evolved on this planet. How do we reconcile that with the Bible? And I honestly believe that there is a motivation, that that is the underlying motivation to try to say the Bible is true and so is science. And so the framework hypothesis is the viewpoint that what we have in Genesis 1 is a symbolic representation of spiritual truth in a writing style that is not quite a poem, but kind of designed uh, like a symbolic analysis. They say that we begin with light on the first day, and we move to the sun by the fourth day, and we come back to rest on the seventh day, And we see this stair-stepping effect in Genesis 1 that is like a a literary framework in which truths are hung. But it's not history. It's not literally true. It's not intended to be literally true. Neither is chapter 2 with a snake and a tree and a fruit. These are symbols And the language of the Hebrew uh, writing is intended to be symbolic and metaphorical. It's supposed to help us understand the truth without trying to be specifically accurate and, and historically accurate. Now, I said these were evangelicals. And what they will tell you is, when you ask them, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? They will say, yes. Do you believe the Bible is fully inspired by God? Yes. Do you believe it's true? Yes. What do you think about Genesis? It's true in all that it affirms about morality and spirituality. But it's a poem. And it's not literal. And so God inspired this beautiful literary form that has no basis in factual historical reality. Don't get hung up on that. They're then able to embrace biological evolution and the Bible, they think, without contradiction. 
And one very well-known Hebrew scholar recently was forced to resign from his position at Gordon-Conwell Seminary because being probably the foremost Hebrew scholar in the United States, the general editor of the New American Standard Bible Old Testament translation came out publicly and said, until Christians get off of their academic head in the sand and believe and accept evolution as the way it was done, we are never going to be taken seriously by the academic community and we're going to be viewed as a cultic group. And we need to accept evolution in order to have a serious voice out there in the community. And this is the way it happened. Hebrews is, or, or, or the Hebrew of Genesis 1 is a poem. Don't get hung up on it in literal truth. And I bring that to your attention because many people believe that today. And they think it helps them skirt some of the issues. The third uh, interpretation, or the third viewpoint is, that it is literally true exactly the way it's written. However, there are those who say it's literally true and still believe that the days of creation, day one, two, three, four, five, are thousands and thousands or, or millions of years. They're eons of time. And there are those who believe it's literally true and believe there is a huge gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And in that gap all the dinosaurs and all the fossils and, and the ancient antiquity of the earth can be placed. And then God kind of remade things after a big mess. He remade everything in six days, and that's what we find. So even the people who say it's literally true bring to the table various understandings of how to understand the very words themselves. Paul Martin happens to believe it's literally true, literally true, literally, that it means exactly what it says and that every word of it happened just the way God said it happened. And therefore, we come to chapter 2 and we say, okay, how does chapter 2 fit? Because it looks like, look at verse 4 of chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. When we come to this statement, it's like, well, it sounds like a second story. How does it fit? But we need to look at the whole of Genesis. And when we do that, what we find is that chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, which ends, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work, which he had created and made. That opening chapter is the great cosmology statement of the Bible. This is how creation occurred. Ta-da! Here's the, here's the preface to the book. And then, we have chapters that occur in Genesis, not the ones in your Bible, but the ones that are highlighted by a transition. And those chapters tell us the story of man in his relationship with God. The first chapter tells us the story of man's original creation and his fall. 
The next chapter begins in chapter 6 and tells us the story of Noah. Now, when I use story here, I'm not talking about fables. I'm talking about historical account. The next story begins with Abraham. And the next one with uh, Jacob. And the next one with Joseph. And we're introduced to these chapters. Oh, Noah's in there, I'm sorry, between uh, chapter 1 and chapter 11. Noah's in there. And so we have these, this is what happened during this period of time. And notice the wording of chapter 4, or verse 4 of chapter 2, when it says, In the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. Now, wait a minute, I thought it was six days. And a seventh day of rest. Isn't that what chapter 1 is all about? Well, you see, chapter 1 uses first day, second day, third day, fourth day. And we understand that to mean a, a literal day. But then you say, back in my day, and what we mean by that is when I was growing up, back in my day, you know, you don't mean a 24-hour period. You mean a, a, a section of time in your life. And so when we turn to verse 4, we have Moses saying, Now, let's go back to the day when creation occurred, and let's drill down and look at man. How did God make the man? And why is that important? Well, friends, the whole story of the Bible is about God and us. That's what it's about. The rest of it is just the, the, the framework to hang it all in. But here's where we get down to the heart of the matter. Our relationship with God is the big deal. And so Genesis 2-4 is this transitional statement. And then there are clues in the passage that suggest to us that Genesis 2 is a focal event within the sixth day. Are you with me? Did you have your coffee this morning? Are you focused? <laughs> we're going to go back at the creation. We've, we've told the whole story of creation. Now we're going to go back and we're going to say, let's look at man specifically and how God made man and why human beings stand out as unique. First of all, we're told, look at verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. In other words, Moses is telling us by inspiration, I'm going to take you back to a time before life was as we know it. I'm going to take you back to a time before there was agriculture and crops, and, 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 and man had to... Uh, carve his living out of the dirt. I'm going to take you back to when God first made him. And we're going to see how special he really was. And so in verse 7 it says, And so the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We're starting to focus in now. Another clue that this is a parenthesis that goes back to day six, is this. What does God say on day six when it's all done? It's all done. <laughs> it's done. 
it's very good. But what does he say in chapter 2 before the woman is made? It is not good. So we have in chapter 2 the statement that something is not good. Something is incomplete. But we're told in the overview at the end of day 6 that everything is very good. So we know that the problem in chapter 2 was actually solved in day six of chapter one, so that God could bring that grand summary and say, now it's very good. Everything is together. The other thing that we realize as we look at the two chapters is we come to the end of chapter one, and here's what God says. He says to the man and woman that he has made, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. I want you to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the face of the earth. And I've given you every green plant for food. And so you are to have dominion. That tells us what the human relationship is to the rest of the planet. But it says nothing about the human relationship with God. That's reserved for chapter 2 as we're introduced in chapter 2 to a covenant where God places man in the garden. He has created him in his own likeness. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve and God are on good terms. They love each other. They walk together. They're in harmony. And God has established a covenant with them. And this is the covenant. There's one tree in the garden that I do not want you to eat of. That is a test of their love and gives them a real choice in whether they're going to love and serve God or go their own way. And so Genesis chapter 2 explains to us the human relationship toward God. So in chapter 1, it's the human relationship toward the planet. Chapter 2, it's a human relationship toward God. And together, these fill out the details of where we fit. Now, when we come to looking at them specifically, I want to uh, spend the next, uh, the remaining time talking about how it is that God made man and why we're unique. And when I say man, I'm referring to mankind, as you'll see in just a moment. It says that the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is unlike any other part of creation. We're told that God takes some some dust, some dirt. Actually, there is a difference in the Hebrew words between the dust and the whole earth. Or the land. We're talking here about dust being agricultural soil that you can till and plant and work. That's the Hebrew word for that. The other refers to the earth itself collectively. And so the scripture doesn't say that God took earth. It says he took dust. Why is that important? Well, we're going to look at that a little later. But I think there's some deeper life significance there. He took him from the dust, he put him in a garden, 
And when he sinned, he went back to where he started, to work the dust. And eventually, because of his sin, he ended up back in the dust. And that's kind of the cycle. And so we're being told something there. But we're, we're told that God took the dirt and he shaped the man. But when he had shaped him, all he had was a body. And now God did something very special. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I guess this was the first CPR, I don't know. But he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Hebrew word for breath is ruach, which is the same word for spirit. God breathed his own spirit into the man. And the man became alive. And as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of life united with the dirt of the earth came together, man became a living soul. And his personality and mind and will and emotion were animated in a whole person who, unlike any other part of creation, is now kind of a hybrid. He can relate to God because of his spirit and the planet because of his body. Human beings actually stand between heaven and earth in one sense as mediators and in another sense as the only part of creation that truly connects with God and with the planet. I I don't know that I would know it if it happened, but I've never observed my dog praying. I have observed him begging me for things every once in a while, But I have never observed him praying because my dog does not have a connection with God in that way. He brings glory to God by being a dog. It's sometimes frustration to me uh, because he's a dog in a sinful world and he's probably affected by some of that. But anyway, my dog does not have a spiritual part of his being. But all of us do. All of us have a connection with God. We are able to relate to God. We're able to communicate with God. We're able to pray. We're able to interact. And we're told in the Garden of Eden that God walked with the humans in the cool of the day. There was a relationship that was going on. The other thing that I don't know if you've noticed before, but did you notice that Adam was not created in the Garden? He was created outside the Garden from the dirt. Had you seen that? Look at that. Verse 7, God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Man was made in the dirt outside and brought into the garden that God planted afterward. Now, how did he get there? Can you do a little sanctified imagination with me here this morning? I've tried to, you know, I've tried to imagine, okay, way out there in the desert somewhere, arid, dry dirt, no shrubs, no plants. It's kind of a dry place. Adam kind of looks around and he sees dirt as far as the eyes can see. And uh, God says, I just made something for you. Come with me. And I kind of, you remember the Superman movie? 
where Superman takes Lois on the flight. Do, 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 do. Can you, can you get that in your mind? Can you see it? You know, the panorama. There's the city and there's all the, you know, and, and they're flying over saying, wow, that's so neat. And she's going, whoa, this is amazing. I just kind of wonder in my sanctified imagination if God just didn't take Adam and say, let's go for a ride. Do, 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 do. And, and he's flying over and looking at the earth that God has made, getting the bird's eye view. And then there's this lush, green paradise. And there he lands in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And it's gorgeous. The colors are stunning. The fruits are amazing. The, the flowers have such fragrance. The, the birds are just brilliant. And, and it's like, wow, this is just amazing. And Adam finds himself in this gorgeous paradise of a garden where all he has to do is pluck the fruit, pick a vegetable, whatever he wants to eat, everything is there. And then God starts this parade. And, and, and Adam's looking around and here comes some elephants. He says, well, I think I'll call those elephants. I think I'll call those bears. I think I'll call those wolves. I think I'll call those lambs. And, and he notices that they're all coming in pairs. You know, and at some point he starts doing this number. I really believe, though I'm being a tad facetious, I really believe that God was trying to awaken desire. I'm not talking about sexual desire, although I'm not denying that. What I'm talking about is... Where's my other part? Where's my counterpart? What's going on here? I really believe God wanted Adam to notice the absence before he fulfilled the compliment. And the scripture says in verse 21, if you look at that, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, the best we can do in, in English is take these Hebrew words and, and, and talk about a rib. But the, the, the real Hebrew here is just stuff. God took some stuff from Adam. This is important, okay, and, and I, told, I told you this at the beginning, I really want this to be practical. If you understand what the Scriptures are saying here, it will change the way you view men and women in the world and the human race in general. It will change your perspective into one that is biblical. And, and I really, really want us to get it. God did not make Eve from the dust. He could have. He could have made Adam, and then he could have made Eve. And just said, brought them together. And God's smart enough that he could, you know, make them both from the same dust. But he did not do that. He made Eve 
from stuff from Adam. What stuff? All the stuff. The body. The essence of the soul. The essence of the spirit. She was, in essence, identical to him. Now, she wasn't identical to him in some significant ways, but she was identical to him in essence. She came from him. We need to get that. We need to understand that we are literally all of the same stuff. And that we are particularly and generally a human family. We share the same essence together. There is no difference in quality or in value or in creative content. We have the same stuff. Friends, that, you know, if we, if there weren't for sin in the world, there would be no wars and there would be no animosity and there would be no rivalry at any level because we would understand this at a profound level. We are literally part of one another. We are a family. And Adam and Eve were part of each other. They were stuff. Uh, literally, Eve was stuff taken from him and shaped into a woman. The second thing that we need to see about their nature is that it is trichotomous. It means it has three parts. They have body, they have soul, and they have spirit. And friends, when we reproduce, when we procreate, we produce offspring that share our whole nature. You know, when sperm penetrates egg and fertilization occurs, it is not just a fertilized ovum or the development of an embryo. It is a whole human. There is no addition of the soul at some later point. There is no sudden addition of the spirit when they take their first breath outside of the womb. There is a whole person there from the very beginning with all the essence of body, soul, and spirit. That's why we value life from the point of conception. Because they don't become human somewhere down the road. They are fully human, although immature. They are fully human at the moment of fertilization. The second thing that we need to recognize here is that she completes the expression of man in the image of God. I want you to see that in Genesis 5, too. I realize it's a little outside the realm of our text. But notice how Moses puts it in Genesis 5, too, because this is one of these summary statements as we're about to make a transition. This is the book of the generations of Adam, Genesis 5, 1, in the day when God created man and made him in the likeness of God. Now, look at the singularity of verse 1. In the day when God created man and made him in the likeness of God, verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them and named them man or Adam in the day that they were created. Notice that God is saying 
that the image bearer of his nature is the man and the woman. Adam alone, as he originally existed, was not adequate to fully express the image of God. It required the expansion of his person into the male and female together to express the image of God. Now, it's true today that no one of us can fully express the image of God. We all bear the image of God. But some of you reflect more of God's mathematical precision in the way you engage life. And you're drawn perhaps to sciences or physics or perhaps you combine that mathematics with organizational skill and you're combined to you're drawn to accounting or whatever. While others of you express more God's artistic bent and you're drawn toward creativity perhaps in writing or painting or whatever. And it doesn't mean that you can't do math, but you, your life reflects one aspect of God's nature and another's expresses another. It takes all of us to reflect the true image of God in humanity. And in our parents who had all of the ingredients in their person, Adam and Eve, it required a male and a female to adequately express the image of God. And, and we need to let that sink in, you know, that when you look at the end of chapter 1, I'm going back to the, to, the, to the final analysis as God makes a statement, He blessed them... Adam and Eve standing together. Let's imagine them hand in hand looking out upon the creation. He blessed them and said to them, You be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, you together. Both of you have dominion over the earth, rule together. He made them to stand side by side as equals. And he created them to reflect his character, his image in its totality, both the male and the female. Now, you may have heard it said, in fact, as I look back on my ministry, I may have said it, so you may have heard it from me. You may have heard it said that based on Genesis 5-2 and Genesis 2, that man is incomplete without woman, that the the total relationship is a man-woman unit that, you, you know, implying that marriage is necessary. And I want to fix that this morning, just in case I did say it, or you've heard it. I want to fix that this morning. Because what is not being said here is that you have to be married to be complete. What is said here is you cannot see the full expression of the image of God in only a male or in only a female. 
You must see both in order to understand who God is. And when we look at the Scripture and begin to unpack it and take it apart a little bit, we find that very frequently the Holy Spirit, for example, is described as having attributes that we typically ascribe to women. But yet, this is the nature of God. And I, and I think that we've got to be clear in our thinking that in the full expression of the image of God, there is a continuum We typically think of certain traits going with masculinity and certain traits going with femininity. But I want to tell you very clearly, there is an overlap in the continuum. I will never forget the day that my dad came home. I was six or seven years old, I don't remember, and found me crocheting. Yes, needle in hand, crochet yarn, I'm crocheting. My grandmother had shown me how to do that. And my dad was like, Oh my gosh! You're crocheting! You need to be playing football! You know? Now, that was the impression I got, was that I had done something wrong, you know? And, and, and my dad was, was a man, you know? And I, he, was a, he was a gentleman, but he was a man. And you, boys don't crochet! Well, I was, and I actually kind of liked it. I taught my wife how to crochet. If you don't believe me, ask her. I'm the one that showed her how to do the first stitches. She's carried it far beyond that now. But but activities and interests do not particularize gender. You know, I I also uh, placed second... Uh, in a shooting contest with the law enforcement officers of Williamson County, Tennessee, in a, in a lawman's shooting contest, in which women were competing and did quite well as well. We, we have a tendency to want to categorize people rather than seeing that there is a continuum, and in that whole picture... We need men and women to adequately convey to us what God is like. And if we're missing one or the other, we're missing a part of the picture. We've, we've got to see that. The other thing is, is that as Eve was made to stand alongside Adam, there is the capacity now for love and for socialization, which is a part of the character of God. God has personality. He loves the communion of the Holy Trinity are together. And now man not only has a vertical relationship, but the capacity for a horizontal relationship, which is part of the imagery. And so Eve stands alongside of him, and they can communicate and they can love each other, and they can begin to develop a culture in the horizontal plane that reflects the beauty and the harmony of God the Trinity in His essential nature. So when we come to the creation of woman, we need to recognize that God has indeed made male and female, and that together 
as the human race develops, together they are both required to reflect the image of God. There is, there is nothing in the Bible, and I want to be very clear about this. I think I actually made a mistake in the first service, uh, which I'll correct for them next week. But there is nothing in the Bible that says that women are to be under the authority of men, that, that men are to control and women are to obey. There's nothing in the Scripture that says that. There's nothing in the Scripture that says if you're not married, you're not complete. There's nothing in the Bible that says that, whether you're widowed or widower or whether you've never married and remained single. There's nothing that says you're not complete. Someone will begin to object and say to me, ah, but the Bible you know, says this, that, and the other. Well, the Bible says that if you enter into a covenantal marriage relationship, you also, under God, must agree to come under, if you're a woman, to come under the authority of your husband in the marriage relationship. And men just love to land there without getting to the point of the way they're to administer that authority is to love your wife the way Jesus Christ loves the church and died for her. I mean, there are two parts to that equation, too, which sin has corrupted. But nonetheless, we need to be careful when we look at the Scripture and not say that the Bible teaches that women in the culture are to be subordinate to men. There's nothing that says that. And I find at the end of chapter 1 that they stood side by side. And I find at the end of chapter 3, after the fall, that the tension that developed was because of sin, not because of creative purpose. And that God made them to walk together. And that as male and female of the species, both of them reflect the image of God, and neither of them can do a full job of covering all the bases. But then honestly today, neither none of us, even if we're all men in the room, not one single man can reflect the whole character of God because we can only reflect a little bit that is most like our own personality. The second thing is, that as I wrap up, just to, just to point out that if you are single... You are still a whole person. You are a female whole person or a male whole person, but you are a whole person. Under God, filled with His Spirit, like any other person, you can fulfill the destiny that He has chosen for you and be completed in the work that He desires to do through you and accomplish your, your intended purpose, we have to face the fact that in our culture today, getting married may not be an option for everyone. In Paul's day in Corinth, that city was so degraded and so morally bankrupt that Paul said, most of you are going to be better off if you like me, you stay single. You just are. And one of the things that we have to recognize, you know, I have these conversations with, with my son Jonathan from time to time, you know, is, you know, you look out there and you say, man, slim pickings. To find another person that has a heart for God, a passion to follow Him, that, that haven't been damaged by 
tragedy in their lives already that are warped in their perspective and messed up in their values to find another person that will walk with equivalent commitment to Jesus Christ in a covenant relationship, honoring God with all their heart, is tough. And Paul says to the Corinthians, you might, be, you might do well just to stay single. The only thing you have to worry about is serving God alone. And we need to embrace the reality that to remain single is not to be incomplete. Because you can be fully complete in Jesus Christ. There's neither male nor female. You can be fully complete in Jesus Christ and serve God's intended purpose for you as a single person. We need to dignify a life of singleness and, and not come with an unbiblical perspective. And we need to realize that when we look for the character of God and the image of God in human beings, we're going to find that it's there in all of us. And those who are saved begin to reflect it most accurately. But none of us are going to reflect it totally. And we need the whole picture for it all to be complete. I sincerely hope that this helps you this morning as you look at the human race and understand God's creative design. Father, I pray that you would bless your word as we come back to it again next week and look more further into the teaching that you would give us insight and understanding. Lord, among uh, above and beyond all else, let us be content to walk with Jesus Christ wherever we are and to allow you to lead our lives knowing that our completion is in you, not in a job or a career or a hobby or even a marriage or another person or children or whatever. Because when we look to other people and other things to find our deepest fulfillment, we are ultimately going to be selfish at best and we are going to be idolaters at worst. But when we look to you alone and focus our attention on you, then we are free to embrace life and embrace love and to love one another in a way that does not prey upon each other but in fact encourages and blesses each other. May we fulfill the purposes of Jesus Christ. I ask it in His precious name. Amen.